scripture today comes from Matthew 7, 1 through 6, and Mark 11, 7 through 11. First, from Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. And from Mark 11, 7 through 11. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom for our father David, Hosanna, in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of God's word. You may be seated. We are now in the midst of the longest shutdown of the federal government in history. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus when he said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. While the U.S. is no longer divided by slavery, Americans have moved so far to the left and right that over half of Republicans and Democrats have a very unfavorable view of the other party, some even viewing the other party as a threat to our safety. Is there anything you and I can do to bring together the United States of America? The fundamental commitment is to the dignity of ordinary people. For his role in those felonies, that lawyer himself, Michael Cohen, what was one of the most single, most inspiring challenges to the country. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. <laughs> well, bye-bye, peace. All right, we're continuing our series today, United States of America talking about the widening division in our society that we're experiencing, or polarization, especially over the past 20 years. And we're asking ourselves this question. As followers of Jesus, as people who say we want to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we want to, we want to follow the golden rule and treat other people the way we want to be treated, if we can't have conversations about things that really matter and the division in our society, who can if we can't have the conversations in church, being people who say we're committed to those kinds of values, then where can we have those conversations? And so we're not telling people how to vote. We're not trying to support one party. We're not engaging in political partisanship. We are talking about the division in our society. And, and that video kind of illustrates that, doesn't it? When the, even the end, bye-bye peace, it just kind of feels like that, doesn't it? There's just such a lack of peace in our society right now. And so in this series, we're exploring how can people who want to follow the Prince of Peace, as Jesus is called in scripture, how can we experience more peace? And so that's where we're headed in the series. I don't know about you. I feel like I would experience more peace if allergy season would just end. Is anybody with me on that? Amen, brothers and sisters, right? It'd be so nice. A couple of years ago, I took an allergy test and the doctor called me back and said, well, we've located the problem. She said, there are three plants in Arizona 
that you are not allergic to. That's the problem. Everything else you are totally allergic to. And so uh, I would just be glad when, when, the, uh, when allergy season's done. I'm sure you will too. And um, uh, today um, we're talking specifically about being united with your family. Last week we talked about being united with God. And loving God, Jesus says, is linked to loving our neighbors as ourselves. Well, how do you love God? What do you, what do you get God for Christmas? God doesn't need a whole lot. But how do you love God? Well, you love your brother and sister. Jesus said you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is linked to it. The second greatest commandment is linked to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so this week we're talking about being united with your family. I was raised in a very conservative Christian home, a strict Christian home. Christian TV was on in my house every day. Some of you who know me have heard this story. And, and um, my parents watched Pat Robertson on TV every day. And Christian TV is actually quite political. If you watch it, it can be veiled, but it's quite political. And I remember the night Bill Clinton was elected president, 1992. I was, just, I was a teenager, but I had my Bible out on the floor in front of me. And I was sitting on the floor watching because I was convinced that it was the beginning of the apocalypse. Because that's what I had heard on Christian TV, that the beginning of the great tribulation is here and the Antichrist will appear, if you're familiar with that kind of Christianity. And I thought it was so politically laced, I didn't even realize it at the time as I was watching Christian TV, but it was super political. And that's how I was raised, and that's, that's where I come. And sometimes, you know, those, those kinds of conversations still come up in my family, and it can be awkward for me. And, and um, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine recently who, who said that his parents before were never political, and he's about my age. He said they were never political, but now they watch a ton of cable news. And just by osmosis, they've begun to talk about Politics, he, he just feels like all the time. Can anybody else identify with that? You know people like this. And he said it just seems like they've gotten angrier. He said they just weren't into it before. They weren't angry. They were just happy-go-lucky people. And, and now it just seems like every conversation has, a, has the, uh, the, uh, the, you know, the threat of going in this direction. And there's anger. And they're just super political. And he's like, it's awkward now. I feel like I, I, don't, I don't have the same relationship with them that I used to have. Of course, we still love each other, and I, and I see them, but it's just different. It's changed. And it just highlights the fact that relationships in the kind of environment that we live in can change. And what do you do when you feel like you're not as united with your family as you used to be, like my, like my buddy, or like me in some ways? Well, uh, that's what we're talking about today. Now, out of that background uh, of the religious right, of that very political type of Christianity, um, uh, a lot of people, I'm not alone in, in experiencing that, but out of that, that kind of media world and some of those most, uh, the, the most vocal Christians in the media, a lot of people have gotten the idea that that's what it means to be a Christian. And I'm, hear me, I'm not saying just fly to the other extreme and that's what it means to be a Christian. No, no, no. It doesn't have to be such a hard either or or black or white. Maybe, there's a, maybe there are a lot of shades of gray in the middle. And, and, and we can think about things independently and be critical thinkers and be independent, thoughtful people. And you can have positions maybe all over the map on certain issues. But because a lot of those folks are, are the most visible, loudest people in the media, a lot of people have gotten the idea that's what Christianity is. And so now, especially over the past 10 or 20 years, we've seen a sharp decline in the number of people who attend church uh, in America. We've seen a sharp decline in the number of people who claim any kind of faith in America, especially younger people, especially millennials. Because they see that type of Christianity and they look at it as politically partisan, anti-science, anti-women, anti-gay, anti-rational thought, etc. 
That's just the idea that they get from watching some of these folks. And, and they see that and they think, if that's what it means to be a Christian, count me out. I'm just not interested. And so now there are all kinds of people who have the same spiritual thirst that all of us have. Human beings are spiritual people. Amen. We just have curiosity. We, we want to think about the transcendent, what really matters in this, in this life. We want to think about the purpose of life and live better lives, become better people. But then it just seems like that avenue is shut off. There's a barricade there now. And one of the things that we could do as a church is to help people just kind of move that barricade out of the way. And maybe they can experience Jesus all over again. Maybe there's a book called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. Maybe they could have that kind of experience because of a church like this. And so one example of that, and this is a shameless plug, on April 28th, we're going to start a new sermon series called uh, In the Beginning, Genesis for Normal People. And those ideas about being anti-science and anti-women and anti-all kinds of things, we're going to explore those issues in that series. Now, it's not just about those issues. We're going to talk about marriage and family dynamics and sibling rivalry and decision-making, because that's all in Genesis 2. We're going to talk about all that. But we are going to talk about some of these big issues that are in the book of Genesis. The sermon series is going to be on that. And then also during that time... We're going to have uh, some connect groups, or actually one. We're starting with one connect group on Wednesday nights. It starts May 5th or May 1st. Listen to me. May 1st, 6 p.m., and it's going to last about an hour. I'm going to lead the group, and as a, as a group, we're going to study this book, Genesis for Normal People by Pete Enns and Jared Bias. And if you text this, uh, text this number, connect the word. I'll try again. Text the word connect. Here we go. To 480 480- 530-7234. Text the word connect to that number. You're going to get an email that'll give you all the details about that group. It's in a little over two weeks, so it's coming. And then we're asking you to order this book in advance and read the first two chapters. It's like college, right? Read the first two chapters before the first week. It's Genesis for Normal People. And then on May 19th, one of the co-authors, Jared Bias, is going to be our guest speaker here, live and in person, sharing about why he wrote the, uh, wrote the book and uh, some of their thinking behind that. And uh, we have a promo from Jared. I asked if he'd make a video. And he made a quick one-minute video about why they wrote the book and what he's going to talk about when he's here. So let's check out the In the Beginning promo. Why write a book on Genesis? Well, you know, in the 20th century particularly, Genesis became a lightning rod issue because of uh, the intersection of science and history. And as those things began to emerge and began to what seemingly uh, was contradict and conflict with what the Bible was saying, it really raised two important questions that we've been wrestling with ever since. And that is, what is the Bible? And what do we do with it? And so we wanted to write a book really to dive into those questions of what is the Bible and what do we do with it? And Genesis was a great place to start. All right, so Genesis with EDM music. There you go. So text connect to 480-530-7234, and uh, we'll get you that information. Um, so today's Palm Sunday. Next week is Easter already. Um, even though it's late this year, it always seems to sneak up on us, but today's Palm Sunday. And one of the scriptures David read uh, from Mark 11, Jesus uh, rides into the city of Jerusalem on a, a donkey, the cult of a donkey, and uh, it's just kind of this odd picture. Of course, it doesn't, it's a different culture. It doesn't quite make sense in our society. Um, but uh, in the ancient world, when a king entered a city, uh, the king usually would want to appear as powerful as possible. And when a king entered a city, that usually meant he wanted to take over that city. And so a king would enter a city on a war horse. 
You know, a horse that, this, this massive horse that's ready for battle, suited up with armor, and it would be a sign that this king has come for war. This king has come to take over. This king has come to dominate. It's my way or the highway, right? I have an opinion, the king, right, symbolically would say, I'm going to force it on you. You're going to like it. You're not going to complain. It's completely one-sided. Are we painting a picture of the way that some family members talk to you about politics at dinner? Am I, am I taking you there right now? Do you feel that? And so the, the king would ride in on this war horse. Jesus enters Jerusalem a different way. He's gone throughout his ministry. He's taught. He's healed. He's given uh, guidance, inspiration, hope. And he chooses to ride in on what would be a symbol of peace in the ancient world. A, a humble donkey. It's not a threat. It's a way of saying, I come in peace. It's something that made sense in the ancient world. And as Jesus rides in humbly, uh, not exalting himself, not dominating, not saying my way or the highway, not forcing himself on others as he humbles himself, lowers himself, he says, I come in peace. I'm here to have a peaceful conversation with you. I'm here to uh, model what it looks like to have peaceful relationships. I'm here to represent God who wants to bring peace and love and joy to this planet. And that's how Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. And as he does, people, you know, you know the story, if you've been around church, people spread their cloaks or palm branches. Of course, it's where the name Palm Sunday comes from. They, they spread palm branches, which is a way of celebrating him and welcoming him and saying, yes, this is what we want. We want this, we want this kind of peace that you offer. And they're, they're calling to him, Hosanna, which means save us. God, save us. Save us from the Roman Empire who's occupying our city. Save us from a hypocritical religious institution. Uh, a, religious, a religious institution that was fused with politics. Imagine that happening. And save us, God, from this. You, you show us something different. Save us. That's Palm Sunday. Five days later. It may not have been that exact group of people. But maybe there was some overlap. That group of people is yelling to him or yelling at him, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Relationships can change. It may not take long. Maybe you've experienced this in relationships where the relationship uh, can change from save us to crucify him in less than a week. Maybe you can identify. Relationships can change over time. And when they do, we're left with, you know, how do we make sense of that? Human beings can be unpredictable. We can be fickle. We can watch a lot of cable news and all of a sudden we're a different person. And, and the relationship has changed. And maybe you don't feel the same sense of closeness that you used to feel. And, and things are just different now. And, and the closer they are, the more it hurts. Amen? And this could be anything that's, that's from an annoying relationship with a coworker to a political argument with parents or abuse or estrangement or something that has violated the relationship. It could, be, it could be anything along that spectrum. And I want to be sensitive today that as we talk about these issues, for you it might be an annoyance. For you it might be the most painful thing you've ever experienced in your life. And we want to be sensitive to that and look at, what, look at how Jesus' approach can inform us as these relationships change. So how do we handle it when people hurt us or provoke us? Well, again, the scripture David read, the first one uh, from Matthew 7. It's from the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous section of sermons Jesus gives. It's probably not a single sermon he gave. It was probably a collection of things Jesus said. Like Jesus' greatest hits. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. 
And in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's coming to a close, he said this. And there is no parallel to this statement in any other part of the Bible. Or in, or in the religion of his day in his area that we know of. There is no parallel to this statement. It seems to be something unique to Jesus. Jesus says, do not or you will be judged. Interesting. Now, if you think about Christianity in America today, do you think the average person on the street would look at Christianity in America and say, man, those people are the least judgmental people on earth. Wow. They are so not judgmental. No, not quite. But this, is a, this is an absolute command from Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest hits, do not judge or you will be judged. So what does it mean to judge? To judge someone is not to say, well, that's wrong or that's right. Murder is wrong. So if somebody murders somebody, that's wrong. It's not, you're not judging that person by saying that's wrong. Judging is, I see you and, and whatever it is you do and I don't like it. So I'm going to pretend that I'm somehow better than you. That I'm somehow here and you're here. And I have the ability to look down on you. It's kind of like contempt that we talked about last week. I have the ability to, con to condemn you. That I'm somehow on high. And you are lower than me. And I can, I can look down on you and make pronouncements about you and your worth as a person. And you are worth less than me. It's a nasty thing. Judge, it's a nasty thing. We're not just determining you know, morals. and that, that's, it's, it's, it's I'm better than you. And I can look down on you. Jesus says, do not judge or God will judge you. And with the same measure you use, the same standard you use, God will judge it to use you. It's, so, it's such clear language, isn't it? Such unequivocal language. Something that we need to, uh, I think, take a little bit more seriously as Christians in the United States. And then right after that, there's this kind of enigmatic couple of uh, uh, statements that are in one verse. He says... Uh, don't throw uh, what is sacred to dogs. Don't cast your pearls to swine. And so on, the, on face value, I mean, we kind of know the conventional wisdom of what that means. In, in the ancient world, dogs were not the pet dogs that we have today. Or they were, but they didn't view them that way. And so dogs were scary to, to, to folks in Jesus' culture. They viewed them as scavengers, and they were scared of them. And so they didn't want to give something of value to dogs. And swine, as you know, Jesus is a Jew, and the Jewish people found, uh, found swine to be unclean. And so these are animals and, uh, that are viewed as frightening or unclean or less than. And, and, and then you're casting something of value to an animal that doesn't appreciate it. So he says, do not judge or you will be judged. And then it's, is this a contradiction or is it, what, what, what does this mean? Now, don't throw something of value to dogs and swine. Well, I mean, it's kind of rough. Do you call people dogs and swine, right? Is it like, don't judge, but some people are dogs. It's like, don't judge, but some people suck. You know, so they're just like, they're dogs and swine. What's going on here? So as we look at this passage, it's important for us as we think about being united with our family and people who disagree with us to, I think, really drill down into what Jesus is saying here because it's challenging. It's, it's, it's not easy. These aren't, if these were easy problems to solve, we, we wouldn't feel the pain we feel. Think about the, the painful relationships in your life. What's going on? If it was easy... Well, then you probably wouldn't be in the situation you're in. So this is pretty tough. But we're going to take a look at this passage and what it, what it means to us about being united with your family. First of all, in the do not judge part, he says, looking down on somebody else, 
judging them is like having a plank in your eye, a piece of, a piece of wood, a board, a plank in your eye, and then you see somebody else with a speck of sawdust in their eye. And you can't help but notice. You're like, hey, hey, man. Hey, bro. He's like, I, I don't, I don't want to be awkward or anything, but I couldn't help but notice a little bit of a speck of dust in your eye. Or here's the Christian way of saying it. I have some concerns. That's the church language. I have some concerns. I saw a speck of sawdust in your eye. I just have some concerns. And I love you. I love you. I just want to speak the truth in love. You got, you got a speck of sawdust in your eye. This is the picture Jesus paints. It's awesome, isn't it? And it's because it's so, it's so uh, communicative because if you have a plank hanging out of your eye, you can't see clearly. You, you can't even see other people clearly. Not only is it hypocritical, obviously, you know, kind of got a plank hanging out of my eye, but you can't even see clearly. Your vision is clouded. You're blinded to your own assumptions, biases, um, the tendency toward confirmation bias for all of us to seek information we already agree with. Our own prejudices, assumptions we're not aware that we have. We're blinded by those things and can't even see clearly to get a speck of sawdust out of somebody else's eye. My arm's about to give out, so I'm going to put that down. And so our vision is clouded by our own stuff so that we're not able to see other people clearly and their shortcomings. So obviously, he says, hey, you got to work on that plank in your own eye. That's the number one thing here. Everything else that is said in this passage and in this sermon today starts there. You got to get that plank out of your own eye. That's, that's going to take you and I so much time. Man, it's hard to look down on other people. Because it, it's, that's a lot of whittling to, to get that plank out of, out of your own eye. And, and then to these, to these statements about not throwing what is, what is valuable to animals that, you know, that don't appreciate it. Um, obviously, there is this surface... Um, application we could pull out of this. You are not obligated to have a political discussion with people who are not interested in a discussion. Does anybody want to say amen? amen? You're not obligated to talk about politics with people who don't really care about your opinion. And so if you say, hey, you know, and you may have the greatest of intentions with a, with a full heart, and you may be a loving person and a thoughtful person, and you say this to somebody, and they're just like, yeah, whatever, and they just like go off on something else. So there, there is a surface understanding there that that would be casting something of value to somebody who doesn't appreciate it. You're sharing part of yourself or you're sharing a well-reasoned opinion and the person, just, they're just not ready to hear it. That's not who they are. They just don't agree and they don't really care, right? And so on, on the surface, it's just don't, don't, don't feel like you have to share things that are important to you with people who don't appreciate it. But then some of you are like, pigs and swine can't talk. My family members talk. Like they say stuff first. Before I don't have to provoke them. I'm not the one that has to cast this stuff out. Well, then it gets more real, doesn't it? It gets a little more complex at that point. Because, yes, the surface uh, interpretation is you know, don't cast something valuable to, to somebody who doesn't appreciate it. But there's another way that is probably more in context with that verse and seeing the plank in your own eye that Jesus is getting at here. And it might look something like this. Don't judge, first of all. Don't judge. And you have to get to the place where I accept that I can't control the behavior and attitudes of other people. So the best I can do is learn to set healthy boundaries and have a relationship if I can, all the while remembering that I'm not perfect and I have to be very careful that I'm not doing the exact same thing as they are. If you're taking notes, we'll leave it up for a while, right? Some things just don't fit in a one-liner. 
Some things are just too complex to be in a bumper sticker. You know what I mean? Especially in the Twitter world we live in, right? Everything is just short and pithy, right? Some things are just a little, a little more complex than that. And so maybe, yeah, I, I want to spend my whole life working on the plank in my own eye. My own faults, my own biases, my own assumptions. And while I'm doing that, I do the best I can to realize something very, very challenging. I can't control other people. If you think about throwing pearls at a pig, it's kind of a funny image, right? Throwing pearls at a pig. And, and yes, you're just tossing something that is of value to somebody that doesn't appreciate it. But why would you do that? Why would you do that in the first place? Why would I want to throw pearls at a pig? It's a good question. Somehow in here, there's, there's this attempt to get this person to value what I value. Are you with me? To get this person, if I, if I just toss the pearls out there and, and the, what is sacred, and maybe I can somehow change this person or control this person. And you find out it doesn't work. And maybe Jesus is saying, don't judge. And one of the hard realities of life is you can't control other people. You can't, you can't make them be the way that you want them to be. They may not be the way you wish they were. They're their own person. It, that is perhaps the most painful realization of life, isn't it? We can't control the opinions of other people. We have people in this congregation whose, who, a congregation whose family has looked down on them because of who they are. Probably the most painful thing they've ever experienced in their life. It's a, it's a, it's a sometimes a gut-wrenching realization that I cannot control the reactions of other people. I can't make them be who I want them to be. I can't make them think what I want them to think. It's their choice. And they have the freedom to do this. And all the, t all the while, I'm focused on, well, we all have planks in our eyes. So do they, of course. But I want to work on that plank in my own eye. And I don't want to look down on them. But I, I wish I could change them, but I can't. And so now, it's on to setting healthy boundaries. And for some, it might look like this. For some people, it might look like... Uh, just ignoring it. If it's something that's not that, you know, it's not that often, you don't see him that much. That's just who they are. Oh, that's just Uncle Bob. That's the way he is. And he makes some comment. Maybe it looks like ignoring it. Maybe that's a healthy boundary. And maybe it starts there. That's just the simplest step. As you set boundaries with people who can hurt you. Maybe, it, maybe that doesn't work. So maybe it moves to number two. Like maybe, maybe having an honest, loving conversation with Uncle Bob. And we disagree about politics, but I value you and our relationship more than politics. And, you know, right, you're just kind of tiptoeing. So it seems like uh, maybe it would be best if we talk about other things and not just politics. Maybe that's, how, maybe that's how it works. And, of course, the politics thing is just an example. This could be a million things. I don't know what it, whatever you're thinking of in the relationships in your life. Maybe it's just best if we talk about other things. But I love you. And, and so that's kind of a next step in boundaries, isn't it? And if you tried that, and let's say the person really is acting like a pig, right? It's just not working. And, and what Jesus said here is, is turning out to be true in this, in this experience. They're turning on you. I share something of value about myself. This is me. This is what I think about this. And they turn on you. And they trample you, so to speak. Maybe verbally trample you. Or they trample you in their attitude, and you figure out, and you, maybe you're already at this place. With some folks in your life, it's just not working. Well, we're just going to have to see each other less. 
And then that's a whole process and, and spectrum and conversation about what that looks like. So maybe it looks like, well, I'm going to work on the plank in my own eye when it comes to being united with my family. I don't want to look down on people who disagree with me, and I, can't, I realize I can't control people. And so now we're going to have to have, you know, kind of a look at mature, healthy boundaries. Now, what can this look like in a relationship? I had an experience recently um, where, um, as a parent, I kind of had to adjust and, and, and reconfigure some boundaries. And the thing about being a parent is, once you think you've got it figured out, they're always changing. They're always growing. So, like, always moving the goalposts on you. And so, uh, um, I take my, my son to this uh, camp in the fall called Dad and Me Camp. And it's this awesome weekend up in, on Mingus Mountain in central Arizona. Anybody ever been on Mingus Mountain? There's a camp there, a few. If, or it's, uh, it's right over the Cottonwood Valley. And Mingus Mountain is just this, it's the biggest mountain in that area. And there's this camp on top, and, and uh, it's just this amazing time. And so uh, two years ago, we went for the first time, and he was six years old. And we did absolutely everything together. They had like a three-legged race. We made a T-shirt. We had a scavenger hunt. We played disc golf. We did the zip line. We did everything was together. It was like me and my buddy the whole time. It was like a dad's paradise, this dad and me camp. And then uh, we said, of course we're going back next year. And, and so we, we planned it the entire year, and I've been looking forward to it. You know, this, this, this past fall is the second time we went. And I'm just replaying the first year, and, man, it's going to be so great. And we got to the camp and uh, got out of the car, unpacked. And then I was, like, you know, taking some things out of the suitcase, and I turned around, and he's gone. And he's, like, in the other room playing with his friends already. And, like, things are changing, right? And so apparently the year between six and seven is like a dog year for a little kid. Like, it's, it's, now he's 13. It's like seven years. And so it was a very different experience of dad and me camp. Uh, I would hang out with him a little bit, and then he would be, like, off with his friends. And, like, oh, man, like, I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? You know, I thought we'd been doing okay, and, and, and you know, I'm like the old man now, and I'm just kind of feeling rejected. And there was one particular activity they had where he ran off with some of his friends, and, and I had this cup of coffee in my hand. And I look over, and there's this other group of dads, probably seven to ten guys, all standing around with coffee in their hands. And it looked like a scene from, like, King of the Hill, like Hank and Boomhauer and those guys. And all just commiserating. Everybody's got a little bit of a gut. And I go over there, and I'm like, man, this is different. And, and all the guys are like, yeah, yeah, right. Tell me about it. And we all thought it would be like last year, too. And, and then one of the, the leaders, who was actually a children's pastor at a church, he said, you know what, though? It is different. But you know, our job as a parent is to pretty, pretty much put ourselves out of a job. He's like, you raise them, and, and they become more independent over time, and this is part of that, and it hurts, it stinks, but like, this is just, I guess we're doing a good job, and so all of us middle-aged guys just kind of stood around, you know, with coffee in our hands, and, and, and chatted it up, and then, um, you know, we kind of learned this give and take, and so the favorite activity the year before was the zip line, and, and they have like this 35-foot platform, and he and I went on the zip line, you know, last year together, and of course... The zip line last, this past year, he went with his friends. And I'm like, oh, man. And then the second time he went with his friends, and I learned something. I learned something as a parent. What you do is you just give a little bit of space, let him do his thing for a while, let him hang out with his friends, and then you totally just guilt trip him into doing things with you. Like, that's the trick. And so I figured that out. It took me a while, but I figured it out. 
And so I said, hey, buddy, you know, I've been looking forward since last year to going on a zip line with you. Will you go with that? And, of course, he's like, well, yeah, sure. It's all just normal to him. And so we harnessed up and uh, climbed to the top of this platform. I want to show you the video here. Here's the, here's the time we had on the zip line. Check it out. Isn't that sweet? It's a cool zip line. Now, first of all, you're thinking, oh, wow, it's a zip line. It doesn't look like that. It's, that, that's that high. When you're on the platform, it's high, first of all. Secondly, you don't know how much that means to me, to be able to go down that zip line. Did you kind of see the pudgy guy testing the rope right before I jumped off the platform just to make sure? You know how much that means to me, to go down the zip line with him like that? But I learned something. And aside from the guilt tripping, which does work sometimes, I learned, okay, when you love somebody, and you want to have some kind of a relationship, and you're learning new boundaries because they're always changing, relationships are always changing, it looks like some give and take, it looks like some listening, it looks like some respect, it looks like communicating your own needs. Hey, buddy, I want you to be able to hang out with your friends. Well, I, hey, I've been looking forward to this you know, for a year. You want to go with that too? He's like, sure, yeah. And so it looks like all those things, this give and take, this negotiation, and this commitment that I'm not perfect, I can't look down on him, can't look down on the people who disagree with me, I've got a plank in my eye. I've got my own biases, expectations, things I thought that camp would be like. and I've got all that, and I can't see clearly. Oh, he's growing up. He's changing. Of course he's going to hang out with his friends, and that's a good thing. And, and in any relationship, that's the case. Now, I want to do, uh, say quickly before we, before we come to a close here in a moment. For some of us, the relationship you're thinking of really is abusive. It really is harmful to you. And please hear me now, and I want you to hear a pastor say this. This is one of the things that our church can offer. There are a lot of churches that just believe in, like, you just reconcile at all costs or blame the victim. Anybody with me there? Come on, y'all. Anybody with me there? You ever hear that? That message in some circles where it's just like, well, hey, you just, you just turn the other cheek. That's not what that means, by the way. There's a whole teaching behind that. Turning the other cheek doesn't mean getting abused. It doesn't mean letting people treat you however they want. It's actually about dignity and level ground. But some people get told that in church, so I want, to hear, I want you to hear a pastor say this. If you're, if you're hurt, if you're getting abused verbally, emotionally, physically, time to get out. It's not time to go back and keep getting hit again or people calling you names. It's just time to get out. That boundary is going to have to be a hard boundary, and that's going to be tough, but it's going to have to be a hard boundary. Does everybody hear me say that? Because it's so important, so important. Abuse tends to escalate, not get better. It tends to get worse. So if you're in that kind of a situation, set a hard boundary and get out. If you're, if you're not at that place where you're not being abused by somebody, maybe it is an annoying coworker. Okay, well, maybe that's a conversation. Maybe that's annoying it, uh, ignoring it. Maybe that's a conversation with the boss, you know, or I mean, that kind of a thing. It can be annoying. I'm not downplaying that. Maybe it's something with family that really is painful. Maybe it's something that's been going on for a long time. There's a rift in the relationship. Maybe it is one of these political things. You know, so you're somewhere in between well, when a relationship changes and you don't want to judge and, and you're working on your own stuff, but you're also setting boundaries, another thing that's extremely important, and relationships can't move on without this, and we're going to close with this, is uh, what pastors uh, tend to call the F word. The F word. It's the word forgiveness. Right before this passage that David read is the Lord's Prayer that we pray every week here. It goes, Father, forgive uh, or forgive their trespasses 
uh, forgive me my trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And when it comes to forgiveness, um, I found that if I announced in advance that I was talking about forgiveness, people wouldn't even come because it can be such a painful topic and so hard to deal with. It brings up so much that some people are just like, I can't, I'm not ready yet. One of the things I've learned is that when it, when it comes to a changing relationship and forgiveness and how you navigate all that, what's really going on is grief. When a relationship changes for whatever reason, what you're really feeling is grief because something has been lost. There was a relationship there that has now changed. Went from Palm, yeah, Palm Sunday to, to Good Friday. It's changed. And, and that's a loss. It's a, it's a death in a sense. Even if the relationship still, there's, there's still a little bit of a death. And every loss must be grieved. Every loss must be grieved. And if you're finding that it's difficult to forgive, man, I'd love to forgive this person, or I've tried and I can't, it just, it just plagues me. Maybe, maybe this is the key, actually. Maybe it's not that it's so hard for you to forgive. Maybe it's just that you haven't fully grieved yet. And it's still there. And as you grieve and let it out, maybe, maybe it is talking to a counselor or somebody who really loves you enough to listen and not give you advice, but really listen. Aren't those great friends? People who actually listen to you? And get it out and cry it out. And grief, grief takes time. It's a process. It's something that it, it just doesn't happen as quickly as you would like or think it will, but it takes time to work it out. I found that when people have actually grieved the loss, forgiveness can be almost automatic. It can almost just kind of click because the, the pain is sufficiently out that the forgiveness isn't that big of a deal anymore. So I want to talk quickly about what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Here, first of all, what it isn't. Uh, forgiveness is not trust. If somebody has violated your trust, trust is learned over time, isn't it? It's earned, sorry, earned over time. Trust is earned over time. So forgiveness can be instant, but trust has to be earned over time. So forgiving, forgiving somebody doesn't mean trusting that person. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Uh, of course, there's a saying, forgive and forget. You know, you, the human brain, when we go through a painful experience, does not allow us to forget. Do you know that? Have you experienced that in your own life? You put your, your hand on a hot stove burner, your brain is like every time you cook, you're like, don't put your hand on the hot stove burner. It doesn't want you to forget. Your brain doesn't want you to forget painful experiences. It's hard to forget them. Now, over time, can the memory fade and not be so powerful? Sure. But forgiveness can be instant. It doesn't necessarily mean that your brain lets you forget. And forgiveness is not excusing what they did. It's not saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's not diminishing it. It's not saying it was okay. No. Forgiveness isn't, isn't saying it was okay. What happened to me was painful, and, and I had to grieve that. So it's not excusing. Here's what forgiveness is. A lot of people are shocked when they hear this. The word for forgiveness in the Bible is the same word as divorce. So they're like, wow. It's afi ame. Afi ame. It means to send away, to release to let go. Now, it doesn't mean divorcing the person. That's a whole other teaching, there, right? There's simplistic answers given by churches on that topic. That's a whole other teaching. But this doesn't, in the context of forgiveness, doesn't mean divorcing the person. It doesn't mean sending the person away necessarily, although it might if the hard boundary has to be set. Forgiveness is sending the offense away. Forgiveness is divorcing yourself from the offense. 
what this person did to me was wrong. Trust has to be earned. My brain won't let me forget. No, I'm not excusing it. It happened. It was wrong. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to divorce myself from the offense. I'm going to send it away. And in doing that, I'm freeing that person from what they did. I'm, it's like I was holding that person by the shirt collar. I'm going to let them go. Right? I'm freeing that person. And then who else am I freeing? Me. Right? Forgiveness. It's divorcing yourself from the offense, releasing the person to God. We'll let God deal with that because I've got my own plank I'm working on. So we're going to let, I don't have time. I'm, I don't have the energy anymore to give that person my energy for whatever happened. So I'm going to let God deal with them and I'm going to be free. I'm going to release myself from the offense. That's what forgiveness is. And so as we navigate any relationship, maybe it is about politics, maybe it's about something much, much more. What do we do? Well, Jesus says, don't judge. I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. I don't want to look at somebody with contempt. I've got a plank in my own eye. I'm going to work on that. Got a lot of woodworking to do. I'm going to work, I'm going to work in the plank in my own eye. And at the same time, I'm, I'm not going to just give whatever is valuable and sacred to me to somebody who doesn't appreciate it. It doesn't mean that their pigs are swine. No, but it does mean that I need to set some boundaries some healthy boundaries in a relationship to whatever the offense is, whatever's going on. Love that person. Seek for reconciliation if at all possible. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. And then no matter what, I'm going to grieve that loss. And that might take a long time. And I'm going to have a heart to forgive, realizing what it is and what it isn't. So we're going to close right now. I want to invite you to close your eyes. And we're going to do a little uh, self-examination here. As we close, if, if you would be willing to put your, the back of your hand down on your legs, where you put your hands on your legs with your palms up, it's a, a, a posture of openness, openness to God. As I've said before, yoga has reminded Americans that our postures matter. And so this is a posture of openness to God. I want to ask you some questions, and I'm going to pause for a few seconds in between the questions. And of course, isn't anything you're saying out loud. It's just, it's just you and God or you and your loved one if that person is next to you. Here's the first question. What relationship is strained? There may be more than one, but the first one that comes to mind is probably the one you want to think about. So what relationship is strained? Strained. Who is that person? And what is causing the strain? What relationship is strained? Who is that person and who is... And what is causing that? What is causing the strain? What's the, what's the thing that's causing the strain? It may be one-sided. There may be fault on both sides. But what's causing the strain? Here's the next question. What conversations need to happen? What conversations need to happen? And then based on those conversations, what boundaries need to be set? Maybe this is a situation where we could totally reconcile. Maybe there'll be some grief, but we'll go through it together as a team. Maybe there'll be some counseling involved, but we're going to work through this and we can reconcile and we're going to be stronger after this than we were before. If so, awesome. It's a happy ending. That's what we want. If at all possible, that's what we want. Maybe that's not possible. Maybe the conversations 
if there even can be a conversation, maybe they lead to some boundaries. What are the least judgmental, healthiest boundaries that could be set up? Next question, what needs to be grieved? What needs to be grieved? What are the feelings that come up when I think about this relationship? Here are the feelings that come up. Here's the loss I feel. What needs to be grieved? It's a process. It can take months or longer. When you think you're, you're over it, then it comes back again and surprises you. Once again, a counselor could help, a friend can help. What needs to be grieved? And then lastly, what needs to be forgiven? As I go through this process of grief and work on this stuff, and over time it just begins to lose its power in my life. And I feel freedom. I feel a lightness that I didn't feel before. I, I know that as I'm grieving, it's, it's losing its hold on me. And now, what needs to be forgiven? How can I let go of the offense? How can I let go of the person's shirt collar and stop spending energy, you know, holding this person accountable? They may not even be around anymore of it. And I release them to God. We'll let God deal with that. I'm going to release the offense and then just discover one of the most amazing truths in all of the human experience that I am now free. I am released. Next week is Easter Sunday, and we're talking about being united with your country and world. As we read the resurrection, about the resurrection of Jesus, one of the things we'll see is that the resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst day of your life doesn't have to be the the last day of your life. The worst thing doesn't have to be the last thing. No matter how painful and divided and strained things are, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. When all is said and done, perhaps God has not even spoken yet. And it might be the beginning of a new day. God, thank you for meeting us here for this work that we've done with a posture of openness and this self-examination. We pray, God, that you'd help us to remove the plank out of our own eye over time. That's a, whole, that's a lifelong pursuit. And that self-awareness and clarity would help me to see my relationships with other, with other people more clearly and set boundaries where necessary, have the conversations, if possible, that need to be had. Grieve and forgive.